Have you ever experienced something so crippling in your life that has made you feel broken? I have. Are you someone who has a giving heart but is struggling to feel good themselves? Are you consistently putting your needs aside to take care of everyone else? If so, you're not alone. Giving starts with giving to yourself so that you are able to give of yourself to other people. Isn't it time you took back control and discovered what makes you tick? Join me in my journey and find out how you can feel better about yourself, live your best life, and share that with others. Thinking of yourself, it doesn't make you selfish. It makes you brave. I'm Nelia, and this is the Giving Starts With You podcast. Hi there, everyone. What's going on? Welcome to the Giving Starts With You podcast, and I'm your host, Nelia Hutt. Today, I have a very, very special guest for you. Um, I would like to welcome you, somebody I respect very much, someone who I met earlier this year and who honestly has changed uh, my life. Um, please welcome my guest, Sharon Smart, to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Neela, for having me here with you. I feel so privileged to be able to interview um, such humble and giving individuals such as yourself who dedicate their lives to helping other people. Um, before we get started on talking about um, your organization, Fundamaya, can you please give us a little bit of a backstory as to how you started with Fundamaya, how you began the process of, of helping other people? Yes. Absolutely. Um, I, I'm Australian and, you know, as you know, Australians always travel a lot and I was uh, traveling in Canada and I was offered a job as a buyer with a very beautiful ethnic store called Carnaby Street in Canada. And they sent me for several years to developing countries to be, um, to manufacture and to my handicrafts. And they eventually sent me to Guatemala and I was here for a year setting up a cottage industry. And that cottage industry was with the indigenous people here who were sewing on. We were using very old um, singer sewing machines. We had no electricity and we were producing beautiful things. The weavings and the, the handicrafts they do in Guatemala is just extraordinary and the quality is extraordinary. And so I fell in love with the people here in Guatemala. I fell in love with the lake. And I decided that I did not want to continue traveling, that I wanted to set up my own, set up a life here in Guatemala for me, and um, which I didn't expect to be such a long time, but I was going to stay for a while. And uh, we set up our own business and um, started manufacturing and producing and selling items to Australia. During that time, while I was working with the indigenous people in the, at the workshop, we had about 35 people there. I started to learn about their lives. I was with them all day. They would tell me, you know, various things about their lives. It was just at the end of the civil war here. So there was a lot of terrible things that had been happening. And I realized how difficult their lives were. And so when I met my husband here, Dwight, who's in the States, he and I both had a background in welfare work and it seemed easy to start helping. So we started by sending one person to school, one child to school. We started paying for one person's medical care. Being animal lovers, we would pack up some dogs every couple of months and drive them the three hours to the nearest vet and have them operated on. And 
so we started that very in a very small way out of our very small pockets and then we met our friend Patty Mort here who was also very similar ideas to us and together we helped the families as much as we could um, there was a then in 1994 my husband and I are we here and uh, we went back after several, after about 18 months, we went back to Australia where I'm from and then eventually went back to the States for a little while, a couple of years. And in that time, we kept in contact all the time with people here that we had met and we had our house here. And so the woman, Gloria, who worked with me would call me every so often and say, you know, can you help this one child? And so we would raise money and send down money for one child. And so we kept our, our foot in doing things like that. In 2004, we moved back here for several months. And in that time, um, we met my daughter Zoe's birth mother, who just happened to be pregnant again. And who, it was only her second child and she was still a single mother. And she offered, uh, if we would like to, she asked us if we would like to take that baby as well. So we were thrilled to be able to adopt Aaliyah as well. And Zoe and I stayed here while Dwight was in the States. And we thought that the adoption would take possibly five months to go through. And then we were going to return to the States. But uh, it, as life happens, it took a lot longer. It took 18 months. And in that time, there was a very big storm here and um, the aftermath is a tropical storm and it really devastated this area. There was flooding, um, there was people lost their lives here, people's houses were washed away. And Patty and I um, did as much as we could with you know, contacting all our friends and family and asking for help for the people here and raising as much as we could to help them. And eventually we realized either we had come to the end of everybody who knew us, who was able to give money. So we said either, well, either we stop now or we have to work out a way to be able to ask for money from, from the general public and be able to issue them receipts. So that's really how we started our own organization. And we really did it without knowing how to do anything. We learned step by step along the way. And from those very humble beginnings, we opened it out of my bedroom. We, and we had one computer between two or three employees here. Um, Dwight was up in the States and he funded everything out of his wages that he was making. And we started little by little and eventually we were able to sponsor 50 children to go to school. And then it just kept growing from that. And then we realized when you sponsor a child to go to school, which is wonderful, a child needs an education, and many children here don't have the opportunity of an education. The reason they don't have the opportunity is because it's not obligatory to go to school and a lot of parents can't afford to buy the school supplies they need. But from that, we realized that a child just going to school is not enough. And a child who's going to school hungry, a child who's going to school sick uh, needs help. And so we started our family aid program where we provide food to families. We provide, um, in, um, energy efficient wood burning stoves, which take the smoke out of the houses. We provide water filters, which give people clean drinking water. We do house construction. Uh, we started a microloans program because a lot of people wanted to be able to run their own business, but they didn't have that little bit of money they needed to be able to start. And we do that just with women. To have that insight back then and how far you've come, you know, so many people say, 
oh, I'm just one person. I can't make a change. But you started with one person. You know, you started with with a dream and with an idea and and the differences that you've made, like, thank goodness, because you have changed so many lives and learning all that and, and becoming an entrepreneur and, and learning how to do that, even just starting with one child. It's it's incredible. I find, you know, it does just it's it is possible for one person to make such a difference and grow. Oh, you know, we have seen this so many times now when people come down and they sponsor a child and, and they develop a relationship with that child and they help that child right through their, their school years. What a huge difference it makes. We, for example, you know, we have a young girl who is 14 who just got pregnant. And before, what would have happened is that the parents would have made her marry the, the, the young man she would have had to go go and live with him and and have the baby and that basically would have been the end of her education but this particular student has been sponsored with us now since she was little same sponsor and they the mother and the child did not want to disappoint the sponsor the mother said no she's not going to go and live with this boy she's going to finish high school and then when she finishes high school then if they still want to get married then she can go but she's going to finish her education and that is a huge, huge change here um, that I have seen. And um, they've given encouragement, they've given life-saving help. And quite often there are people who haven't even never met the student and will never probably come down and meet them, but they've developed an incredible relationship over the years. And, and, the, and the, you know, it goes both ways. It's not just um, people giving things to people here who need it, also, the people who give, I also see, get as much or even more back from the relationship. I know that your organization, it runs on volunteers and it runs on sponsorship. And yeah, I can see how that would change one, just changing the cycle of how things are happening. The fact that that mom, too, could could have the insight to change the next generation that she that she, you know, laid down the line and kind of in a nice but firm way said, no, we need to continue and that you're not going to be living with you know let's try let's try to change things right I think that's yeah. fantastic because I did speak with some people when while I was down there and they were talking to me about how um how the rights of women and how the empowerment is changing slowly so I think that that's a great a great um story because it does show that it does show that the parents are starting to um, to realize certain things and realize that their children can have more. So they're teaching them that as well. Oh, definitely, definitely. When we started 15 or 16 years ago, sponsoring children to go to school, the parents would come, but they only wanted their boy to go to school. They would push the boy, you know, take him, please take him. And we said, no, we take a boy and a girl, you know. Well, actually, first we wanted to take the girls, but then we realized we couldn't leave the boys behind either. And so we started, you know, equally sponsoring. And um, it has made it, and over that time, when we first started our preschools, it was incredibly hard to find Indigenous women teachers because women, Indigenous women hadn't been able to graduate as teachers. It was very rare. And now we have a lot of women who have graduated as teachers. All our preschools, our three preschools, all have Indigenous women as teachers. And, you know, and several of them are having their master's degrees. 
And now also they see, like now we have um, female indigenous doctors, nurses, which wasn't the case before. And so people now have realized, mothers and fathers have realized that their children do have, an, do have an opportunity to be able to get ahead, that the girls also will be able to have their own education, have, have their own uh, career. And, uh, you know, when we still opened up, we opened a junior high up in Tierra Linda. When we opened the junior high there, and we opened it because the people there hadn't, they wanted, they asked us to open a junior high there because they were a fairly remote community and the, the children, the girls specifically could not go on to junior high because they had to walk long distances and it would be dark when they were coming home. So it was dangerous for them. But when we opened the junior high, all of the children, we asked each one, what do you think you would like to do when you know you graduate? And all of them wanted to be teachers. And that was because that was the only thing in their village they had seen as a professional career, the teachers who came to their school. Now, last year or the year before, we asked everybody, you know, what are you thinking you want to do now when you graduate? And one of them wanted to be an astrophysicist. <laughs> that was quite amazing. One, you know, two of people wanted to be chefs. And, uh, and this is from a community where people, their diet is beans and rice and, you know, nobody's ever been a chef there. And there was nurses. There were still people who wanted to be teachers, thank goodness. But it was nurses and doctors and architects and computer scientists and computer, you know, computer system studying, computer engineering. It was quite incredible that, you know, the difference it has made in 10 years of, of children graduating and what they now see is the world is open to them, that there is a lot they can do. Right. But it, and it, like you said, it does start with education because they, if they weren't in that situation, they couldn't, they wouldn't probably be able to see the possibilities. So the pos, yeah. So the possibilities are endless for them. The, the, you know, just because they live in a developing country does not make them less valuable, less intelligent, less, uh, less hungry for, for possibilities. So I think that it does start with education and just, from the beginning, from where you said with one child till now, it, it's incredible. Like, I wish I could have been there to see the difference, you know, mm -hmm. and because I had just been there the one time and I can't wait to go back. <laughs> but just, I spoke with a lot of people while I was down there through interpretation, of course. But I did learn a lot about how far women have come. And even for the boys, it's so great when you hear that they're 11 years old and they don't have to go and work in the fields that they can go to school. And it, it just warms my heart to think that there are, you know, there are changes coming for them. Oh, absolutely. It's been fantastic. I mean, one of the reasons we started the education program, we started a program also for parents to learn to read and write, especially women, because women would always come to us and, you know, doing different things and having to sign a paper. And they always laughed very humbly and embarrassed. They had, to laugh. they had to put their fingerprint on it because they didn't know how to read or write. And one of the things we found from that was many people lost their properties, lost their homes, signed up for incredibly high interest rates because they could not read what they were signing. And so one of the things was that, you know, we didn't want to have the next generation go through that. And 
you know, if you don't know, quite often indigenous people here are like their second class citizens in their own country. They would go to the hospital, the doctors don't speak Ketchikal or the, whichever Mayan dialect they speak. They, the doctors speak Spanish, the nurses spoke Spanish, they got the legal system, the legal system only speaks Spanish. And you know, you, you know yourself what it's like when you're trying to speak a foreign language, you know, going to having medical care is very difficult in a foreign language. It's, you know, you get very stunned what you're you know, trying, you're scared and you don't know what's going on. And the same with the legal system. And so those things have gradually changed, thank goodness, that you know, now there is a, a legal aid assistance for Mayan women. And, uh, you know, the doctors, now, now the nurses often speak Ketchikel. Some doctors do, but not, not so much. You know, we find that when we send patients to the we have to always send somebody who accompanies them, who understands the process and finds out what they, what they need and how we're going to continue with it. Yeah, it's great that you have the ability to send translators too, because again, from education, right, to learn to be able to speak both languages. And so, yeah, it's, it's wonderful. And in our preschools, we te- our preschools in two, two of the villages where we have our preschools, the children come speaking usually only Ketchikil. And so we teach them Spanish so that when they start school, they're not starting um, with, a, with a, a problem that they don't understand what's being told to them, that they start having a basic knowledge of Spanish, that they have their numbers, they have their letters, they know their colors. And so they can start speaking, they can start learning in Spanish. In our preschool in Panajachel, where a lot of the children come understanding Spanish, um, we also teach Ketchikel so that this is not lost on them, that their culture is not lost on them. And that we also encourage um, the customs, the indigenous customs here. We like to encourage the dancing, the cost, the, tra- the traditional clothing. We like that to be a, a sign of respect for the culture and that the children can see how much it's appreciated by people. Yeah, I love that. I love that you guys do that. Um, so Ketch- just so my view- my listeners understand, so Ketchikel is the original Mayan language? Ketchikel is one of the original Mayan languages here. It's spoken in this area. But there's also, I think, 23 or 26 other, 23 other languages in different areas. And, you know, quite often they're very different from each other. People can't communicate. People who speak Mam can't communicate with people who speak Ketchikel. So it's a, it's a different, diff, very different languages. Yeah, I had the opportunity to hear some people speak it. And wow, what a, what a language. It would be very hard to learn, I think. Oh, it is. <laughs> <laughs> But it was it was great because not only like when we went and visited the preschool, my family, when we went to visit the preschool in uh, San Antonio, they had welcomed us with an English song. So they were actually learning a little bit of English, too, which we were like so surprised and it was so beautiful. Yes, we've been trying to teach the children English in the preschools as well, because really, you know, to be able to have, a, you know, as everyone knows, it's much easier to learn a language when you're little. And um, really to be able to get ahead in the future, speaking English and understanding English makes a huge difference. You know, this, this area we are is full of, is run by tourism. And so being able to speak English um, helps them to have a job, helps them have a job on, you know, computers, whatever. It's, it's just an advantage for them. Right. Um, so I know that you provide translators. Um, I know that sometimes, uh, you need to send people to to Guatemala City or to different hospitals and for medical appointments and the translators go with them. I know that you have started this remarkable 
um, education where you have the preschools and you said with the, um, with the, was it a high school and mm -hmm. yes, mm -hmm. junior high. So that's not all. Like, I know you guys have a, have a hand in everything. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about, um, the elderly program or some of the other programs you also run there? Sure. Uh, elderly care program is actually one of my favorites. I, I love these people. They're people who have lived very, very difficult lives and very hard lives. And they are people who usually do not speak Spanish. They speak usually only Quechua. We have two elderly care programs, one in San Jorge, La Laguna, where we have an elderly care center and one here in Panajachel where we do a lot of meals on wheels. We have a lot of people who aren't able to come to our place. Um, what we, we started this program, um, and this was another program that one of our managers, Gloria, encouraged because her mother was elderly and her mother grew up in the same village, even though she no longer lived there, she understood how a lot of them were suffering, that they didn't have enough food. And it's not the situation that people don't care about the elderly, about the elderly in their family. It's a situation often they don't have enough food themselves. And so they have to make a decision who gets to eat. So, you know, they have to have the breadwinner eating so he can keep working and the, the children have to eat. And quite often there's very little left over for the elderly. Sometimes the families have moved away to find work and there's nobody at home to look after the elderly. And the people who were, their families have moved away are not wealthy people. They can't afford to travel back and forth. They often, they can't send money. They have no bank accounts. It's very difficult. And sometimes they're really, they have been abandoned. Sometimes, you know, the families have moved away. Or sometimes the situation is that they don't have any sons. They have daughters and the daughters have married. And the men that married won't give them any money to be able to give their, their elderly parents any help. That's a situation that women often, if the women can't work, don't have their own money coming in, they often do not have any control over any amount of money. The money they're given is for this and for food and that's it. And so they often don't have their bus fares to go and visit the elderly. They don't have any money to take to them or any food to give to them. So it's a whole different lot of varieties of reasons why the elderly are suffering sometimes you know it's the families have passed away and they're the only ones who are left but so we have tried our very best to help them as much as we can we give hot meals five times a week at the moment because of the COVID-19 situation we are our center is closed except for two days or two days a week and the rest of the time we're delivering food for them to cook at home um, giving them a certain amount of food that they can have at home Usually we try to provide medical care as much as we can. Um, we try to provide home comforts, little comforts that they've never had. A lot of these people are sleeping on beds that are made of wooden planks and they have a straw mat on top of those wooden planks. And as you're getting older, your body hurts a lot more. And so we try to give them at least a mattress to put on top of those wooden planks, a blanket. We try to give them a chair. Sometimes people just want a chair to sit on. We try to give them a water filter. We try to give them a stove that will help, help that they won't have to collect so much firewood. We are very grateful to the Guatemalan government that actually sends somebody twice a week to our center to give the people activities like little games or things and, um, and, and playing some games that provide movement for them. 
we also do that. We do that with, you know, groups that come. We, as you know, when you came and sang, the people love it. I think they probably sang back to you in Kachakel. And then we also try to have, um, like, the games of bingo. People earn a little bit of soap or something. These people often don't have any access to money. So we ask when groups are coming down to bring soap or socks or just little things that make people life more comfortable. Right, right. See, and it's... Yeah, because you, you get to that age and, you know, you want to have at least the basic necessities. It, it, it's, it's tough to hear, you know, living in Canada when, uh, yes, we, we um, worry about our elderly here, but not at any, not at all to any extent. Um, it's, it's heartbreaking for me to, I met a lot of these, these elderly in the, that one day we visited the care group. And they were all smiling. They were so grateful. They were so happy to be together. It wasn't just like, of course, the meals and and all those things are so important and so vital to keep people healthy and to keep them to keep them alive. But I felt like it was more than that, too. It was just the company, like how lonely it must be for them to to not have anyone with them like i know a lot of them you said live alone so just being in the community and having other people like them and their age group and having those activities like you were saying with being like that keeps their mind focused on something besides being hungry besides you know all the all the other things in life the hardships so that can really just that in itself i find um, can really give somebody a purpose to continue and to keep going. And I think they really, really appreciate that aspect as well. Oh, they really do. They, they enjoy the company. They enjoy having people come and, and meet with them. And, you know, they especially enjoy the treats that sometimes comes from that. Um, you know, sometimes just the fact that, like, sometimes a group will bring ice cream for everybody to have. That's such a huge treat for them. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's a pleasure for us to be able to um, help them. It's really is a, a pleasure for us and an honor for us to be able to do what we can to help them. Because some of the stories we've heard, you know, how they've lived beforehand, not, none of them had a chance to go to school, um, but the, some of the women, you know, I remember one woman when she's now passed away, but she told me that when she was younger, the custom was that the men and the children ate and the women stayed back and waited till everybody ate and sometimes what was left for them was very little. And sometimes she said they had to have moldy tortillas, that that's what they had to eat. They had to have the old tortillas that had mold on them. You were speaking about um, many people not being able to read and write to, the, especially the elderly people. You know, I didn't realize until I discovered I had an aunt. Mm -hmm. I'm from Portugal. Uh, well, I'm Canadian, but my family's from Portugal. And I discovered not too long ago that I had an aunt um, who was illiterate and it wasn't until I met her and saw her live day to day that I really that I could see and I really realized how much it actually affects you like how much uh, you know how many things you you're not able to do and simple things like if you know for example even just the way they did things not because they were illiterate but because perhaps they weren't educated so um, in Portugal as well, like I know my parents went to school till they were in grade three and my aunt, for example, did not go to school. So simple things as putting away the dishes instead of putting them in their proper slots would just throw mm -hmm. them into the cupboard, 
and I would be like kind of in awe or, or just reading, you know, prices at the grocery store when she came to visit. It wasn't until I dealt with her and she came to live with us for a little while that I noticed how much of an impact that makes. So it just gave me a little bit when I went to meet some of these elderly people there and they're so welcoming, it just gave me more of an insight of what it would feel like sort of to be to be them and to be in their shoes. And so it's I think it's fantastic and so and so loving that you guys, I don't know, you in particular, but your whole Fundamaya team is amazing. I just can't say enough about you, but you help them so much in so many aspects. It's not just the going to school and feeding and clothing and housing. It's just it, with hope. You know, I saw hope like the time that I was, we only went for a few days and I never saw one person who was ungrateful. I didn't meet one person who had a frown on their face. I didn't see one person arguing. Everybody was just full of hope and happy and grateful, even though they were struggling, struggling more than I have probably seen in my lifetime. So I really appreciate everything that you're doing. I don't know that you know how much you're impacting everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much. You know, it's the people here are amazing. They have a wonderful sense of humor and they manage to smile through situations that I would be crying if I had to live in their shoes. Uh, you know, it, 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 they're often in very desperate situations and yet they manage to smile. It's quite incredible. And, and people here are grateful. They don't expect to get help. You know, the government here doesn't help them very much. And I saw this when the hurricanes hit, when the, all the disasters that happen here, people don't wait around. They try to help themselves as much as they can because they don't expect anything to come in to help anybody to come. And so when they do get help, it's just, it's incredible to them. They cannot believe that, you know, somebody is helping them do this. Somebody's helping send their child to school and helping them, you know, have a blanket, S simple things, simple little things that make a huge difference to people's lives. For sure. And I had a chance to meet Gloria when we were there. She Wow, what a what a beautiful woman. She's a beautiful soul. She's so hardworking and she really, really cares. You can tell, like she's relentless. And yeah, she would she would come with us and to some of the preschools and um help guide us through our, our journey. But I've also came to understand that her daughter is now a psychologist. So there's a wonderful, uh, you know, another wonderful example about how education can really be freeing and can go from generation to generation. It, it, is, it is incredible. Gloria is an amazing person. And I probably would not have started Fundamaya without her because she has been the guiding force right along. She has a great compassion and heart for people. She grew up, you know, all our staff is Indigenous, but Gloria especially, you know, she came from a very large family. The family was very poor. And she, um, she has recounted the experience to me when her, she was young that her father um, was very ill and he had worked on a finca on the coast, which was probably, probably about a four-hour drive from here. But because he was very worried that he might die, he did not want to die here in Panahachel at home because he knew it would cause an expense to his family that they couldn't afford. So being ill enough to think that he's going to die, he walked 
that distance. It must have taken him days because it was mountainous area. He was sick and he walked back to that finca knowing that if he died in the finca, that they would bury him. It wasn't probably for about two months that they found out that he survived and he came back home. But that's the level of poverty they had that that was the, can you imagine being sick enough that you think you're going to die, that you decide to walk all that way so as not to put any extra financial pressure on your family. So that's, that's what she grew up. Her mother, you know, went to, used to go to the, the trash area and get rags out to make her a doll. So Gloria knows what it's like to have gone through that. They went through the experience too that the mother gave birth to a child and the child was sick. They left the hospital um, as they, was, they had to do. They had to leave the hospital. They came back to see the baby and the baby, the doctors told them the baby died. They never, never had a, they never knew where the baby was. They never got the body back. Um, in those days, they did, hadn't, didn't have any recourse. And so that's the life, that's the world that she grew up in. And so she knows what it's like for children here. And she has appreciated that. She, had, she started educating herself when she was 17. She put herself through school. And she also, you know, we sponsored uh, her children to go to school. And her daughter's now a psychologist. And, and a terrific, terrific young woman who is also the indigenous princess from this town, which means that she is, um, it's, and it's not a beauty contest, it's a contest for, um, it's a contest for a young woman who understands her culture and is representing her culture and can speak fluently her language. And you have to be a very respected young woman to be even able to participate in that competition. So we're very proud of her daughter and uh, her two sons are also becoming professionals. Sandra, who is also our educational manager, she's the manager of our education program and she oversees the school sponsorship program. We started sponsoring Sandra when she was five years old to go to school. Sandra, um, she had a, she was a, her father was abusive and her mother left her and went home to live with a grandmother. Her mother didn't speak, didn't speak Spanish, only Ketchikil. Her mother made tortillas. And Sandra, from going to school and having an education and being a very motivated student, she was very motivated. Sandra now has her master's degree in social work and she has another master's degree in community development. And her, and her son, you know, a huge difference with having an education one generation, her son is... Um, now attending bilingual school. He's seven years old. He's the, he just became the master champion of chess here in this area, which is wonderful. And uh, it's just a different, huge difference of what education can make of somebody having that, that chance to be able to go to school. And you know, we don't, we don't realize what a privilege it is in our developed countries to know what it is to have a chance to go to school, what a difference it can make for a child here. So when the children do go to school, can you tell us a little bit about what their hours are like and when does the school year start? And The school year starts in January and sometimes February for university and it finishes in December, no, October, November. And um, our, our preschools go all year round. We close in December for just a little while. Um, and the children go, there's usually two sessions for school, for, gen, for the 
general public schools. They have a very early morning class that starts at 7 a.m. and finishes around 1, and then another class that starts around 2 and finishes around 6 or 7 that night. And the reason is because the schools are very uh, overloaded, They're, so they need to use the schools two different times. And quite often, a lot of these children who are going to school, they work also in the fields. They go home, they work in the fields, they work doing selling, selling things in shops, they work helping their families at home. So they, 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 a lot of, some of our children work in the river sifting sand out. So they, they work hard. Yes, I, um, well, you met my son, Evan, who, who came with us. Mm -hmm. And he got to meet a lovely boy, Jorge, who is the same age as him. And we came to realize that that's an example. He would go to school for half the day and, and work in the fields. And my son was very, very surprised. I think it was a good trip for him. Um, he, he knew that this kind of thing happened in the world where kids his age, you know, worked hard, but he didn't really have a chance to see it firsthand. So when he did meet this child, he realized, you know, we're the same. We're the same. You just live here and I live somewhere else, but we're all human. We all bleed the same. Like, it's just amazing. Like, I, I need to share something with you. It was just when we came home, uh, my son was more grateful. He uh, was less spoiled. He really took a lot uh, from the trip. He talks about it a lot. Um, it was difficult for him, especially seeing... Um, that kids were hungry. And one of the things for him was there, there were a lot of street animals mm -hmm. and that really touched him a lot. So he had a little bit of a hard time with that when we got home, but he had such a great experience. And I actually interviewed him about his experience in Guatemala and that should be coming up soon on the show as well. But oh, I, look, I look forward just, to hearing that. Yeah, you know, he's a teenager. He kind of like I had to ask him a lot of questions for him to want <laughs> to wanna speak up. But yeah, and he, you know, it was tough. Like we stayed at an Airbnb and we were there for maybe 10 days in Panahachel for just about five or six. But you know, there was one day I met this incredible, well, there were a lot of days, but there was one particular day where we met this beautiful family and there were about eight of them. And they were, um, they were all living um, in very poor conditions. And, you know, I went back to the Airbnb and I sobbed. Like, I really, really, um, it really affected me. And I knew that that was happening. But until I saw it, you know, it was just, we had a very quiet evening that night. We were just, you know, so grateful and trying to think, what can we do when we go home? So can you please tell us, like, even if we don't have a lot here, can you please tell us ways that we can help? Because I know that the money that people give to Fundamaya is a hundred percent, like it makes a difference. It goes a hundred percent to helping people. And I've seen, I've seen it when, when I was there. So sometimes people are afraid to, to send money to certain organizations or, they're they're hesitant because they don't really know what where the money is going but you know if you have a chance to go to guatemala if you have a chance to meet some of these people you know it's such a beautiful place not just the people but you know it's a great tourist area as well it's it's just absolutely gorgeous um the views the volcanoes the the culture but it, can you let us know for those of us listening from from the states and from Canada and from England and 
from Australia and from all these well-off countries. What is it that we can do to help you? The, well, thank you so much for asking that. The greatest thing you can do right now in the COVID-19 situation is people are desperate for food here. That's the most desperate need we have. The, you know, everyone is scared of getting the virus, but people here are facing hunger and starvation because there is no work. Guatemala has been on lockdown now for eight weeks. So our greatest need right now is for food for families. But normally, and any other time as well, we help sponsoring a child to go to school. Sponsoring a child to go to school costs $35 a month or $420 a year. And we also have Fundamaya Canada. And Fundamaya Canada can issue receipts, you know, for Canadian, Canadian donors. And uh, we, uh, we have a long list of children hoping and waiting to be able to go to school. So that would be a wonderful thing. We have children from preschool age right up to a high school, and then there's university students. University fees are a different amount. To send a child to a university or send a student to university, it's $1,350 a year. Um, that's the, to help a student to go to school. Well, that would be fantastic for us, and also to help the children in the preschools. That's wonderful. The elderly care program is to sponsor an elderly care person to an elderly person to eat five days a week is $38 a month. Um, and that's something that we have a lot of elderly who need help. So we really appreciate any sponsorship of an elderly person for $38 US a month. Right. And if people, sorry to interrupt you, if people can't afford to give monthly, even they can give a one day, you know, if what they can do, you know, anything helps. So even if they can just give a one time, it, it would be appreciated. Any amount is appreciated, any amount. We are very happy, very grateful to have any amount because, you know, $5, we can buy eggs for people. So, you know, whatever people can give, one-time donation is very, very grateful for that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to um, add your, you know, your information to the show notes at the end of the show so anybody can go on and look at the website. Um, and perhaps, yeah, and perhaps if, if they would like to donate or, you know, even just simply if they wanted to write a letter to somebody who works with you, just thanking them for their hard work. You know, we tend to forget about all the workers that are, you know, during COVID-19 who are um, putting themselves at risk and handing out food and making sure that people are okay and visiting people and being translators and buying the food and transporting the food. And there's so much work that goes behind it. So we tend to forget about these people too, right? Thank you. Yeah, we our staff has been incredible. As I said, you know, all our staff is indigenous except for me, and uh, they have been incredible. You know, they actually had the choice. The government said, you know, all organisations, everybody should close and nobody should work. And we had a meeting, and all our staff went, "This is when everybody needs us more than ever." And so. They said, no, we're not going to stop. And because we're a humanitarian organization, we are allowed to continue working. We have restrictions about where we can go. We can't go into some villages. We have to deliver food at the edge of the villages. Um, but people can't come to us at the moment. A lot of people, if they're out of town, can't come to us. So we're going to them. And so I've been incredibly proud of our staff that, you know, they've just put their masks on, they get their gloves on, and they just get out there and they do it. And they, they've been, you know, going through the rain and the mud and 
um, getting up early and packing food. Not only do they deliver the food, they get up early, they pack the food. They, uh, Gloria is out talking to families every day to see what they need and how we can help. Um, it's, they've been incredible. I've been so impressed with them. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I belong to your Facebook group as well, and I speak to some people down there um, weekly, and just the things that you've been sharing on there and, and the stories and all the hard work, it's, it's really heartwarming. Um, what do you find has been the biggest transformation personally for you, um, starting Fundamaya and just, and just being able to maintain it for all this time? I think for me, I think personally, I, I have an, uh, I think a huge sense of gratitude for all the people who've donated, for all the people who trust us, who give us their money to be able to continue this work. And I am incredibly grateful that we have been able to do this work and that we've been able to touch so many lives and to help so many people. I think that's what I feel the, the greatest thing is that I'm, very grateful that I've been able to do this work and I'm grateful for everybody who's helped and I'm I'm grateful to the people here who've shown me how they live and how I should be grateful for what I've got. <laughs> um, I understand, um, before I forget, I understand you guys have the animal shelter too. Forgot to talk about that. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> 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 Can you tell us what's happening at your house? <laughs> we, we could not just leave, you know, Patty, my, my friend Patty, Dwight, my husband Dwight and I are very big animal lovers and our daughter Zoe and Aaliyah as well. And so we could not leave the animals behind. And uh, they're, you know, unfortunately here, animals are not viewed the same way. They're often a, a nuisance. People are often scared of them because they think they have diseases or they're going to bite. Um, animals are often treated cruelly. I have seen the attitude change a lot over the years as people have become more educated and there are people here who love their animals and look after them. But unfortunately, there is a lot of unwanted street animals that, you know, on the street, puppies um, get thrown out all the time. Puppies get thrown on the street, puppies get thrown down by the river to die a horrible death of dehydration and starvation. And so we had, we started a spay and neuter clinics. We do as many spay and neuters as we can to stop the amount of unwanted animals here. And when we started that, doing the spay and neuters, we had to bribe people to bring their dogs and cats to us by offering them, you know, secondhand shoes or blankets or whatever we had to offer them with. And now, years now down the track, people are always asking us, when is the next clinic? Can you put my dog or my cat in? People have realized the benefits. They, they, um, so they come to us now asking, you know, please put my, register my dog or cat for the next, um, next uh, spay or neuter clinic. And, you know, we've taken in a lot of puppies and dogs and unfortunately we still have. We have, um, I think, 60 dogs at the moment and um, we have about 25 cats and that we're always hoping that we will have people adopt them and uh, you know we, they come to us in all sorts of ways people leave puppies outside our door dogs are tied up to trees with their puppies um, we just found a dog that had been run over on the street a little while ago a young puppy about eight months old whose front leg was absolutely mangled and she'd been like that for a month 
and we raised the funds and had her leg amputated and we're very, very happy that somebody from the States is actually adopting her as soon as flights open up again, she'll be heading to the States. And so we've had a lot of, we've had a lot of dogs go to the States, dogs and cats go to the States in Canada who've been adopted. And uh, we wish we had a lot more going up, but um, in the meantime, we try to, to feed them and maintain, you know, good health for them until, until we can find a loving home for them. And you guys make it really, really easy to adopt. We, we will beg you to adopt. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it's, it's actually very affordable. And can you tell us, like, if anybody is interested, is, does this information on your website on how to go about uh, I adopting? I don't think it is right now. But, um, the, you know, you just choose a dog and we will arrange the flight up. The person just has the dogs spayed, and, spayed or neutered and they're all vaccinated and the cats as well. And so um, it usually costs, depending whether somebody will accompany the dog or whether we send the dog by itself, it usually comes between somewhere to five and $700 to have a dog flown up and um, have the paperwork done. Yeah, it's amazing. We, we had a chance to uh, go to the shelter and meet some of these animals and it's so beautiful. Yeah, they're all, they're all loving it. They all want to have, they all want a person. They all want a home. There's so, so many different ways we can help. And just the scope of what you're doing from education to feeding to the elderly to how do you manage all of this? Like, honestly, how do you have the time and the energy and keep yourself, you know, uh, take care of yourself in the process? Well, you know, I, I think the energy comes from the fact that we get so we get support and things happen. And that makes it, you know, if we didn't get any support, if we couldn't do anything, we'd have no energy for it. But we, you know, we have people come down, we have people donate, we have things happen, which keeps us all energized and keeps us all running. And that, that's wonderful. I know that if people want to come down and, you know, on a trip, there's always something to be done. They always need construction, volunteers, you always need, you know, people to help out deliver food. So I just wanted to um, maybe invite anybody who wants to go down and visit Guatemala to maybe get in contact with you. You guys were amazing. You have a wonderful volunteer organizer. Um, and perhaps, you know, they could contact you and maybe you could you could use some of their skills in uh, at Fundamaya. Oh, that would be fantastic. You know, we, we very much look forward to Guatemala reopening again and having people come back and you know whether people want to come whether they have a skill they want to share with us well or they want to get involved with playing with the children the preschool teaching classes whether they want to do construction whether they want to help with the animals whether they want to go and serve food to the elderly or if they want to come on a, a culture tour where they go and watch the weaving and they go and see how people are sewing and what we're doing because we have a women's program where we teach sewing so we have women come down every so often who bring their sewing equipments women come and teach crochet you know people want to learn people want to learn how to have another skill um, to be able to get ahead cooking you know teaching someone how to cook something you know people have learned here from foreigners coming down you know, so many times like people have learned how to make really good bread and, and just different things that, you know, you might have a skill you want to share that you don't think is so valuable, but here it could be very valuable. And, you know, even just coming down and spending time and seeing what's happening and seeing how, you know, you could fit in is, is a wonderful thing to do. Yeah, just raising awareness and educating yourself too. And from experience, I know that one trip can be life-changing. 
So I think it's it's great. I think people need to venture out and maybe get get away from all of the resorts and just really visit, you know, some places and get and get um, talking with some of the people. And I just find it it's a remarkable experience. Well, I'm glad you had that experience. We've had a lot of people feel that same way, and and we're happy and ready to welcome anybody who wants to come. Yes, thank you. Well, Sharon, um, is there anything that we haven't talked about today that you think uh, you would like to talk about? Probably the only other program I think we didn't touch on was our microloans program. We have a microloans program that for women and uh, the women are in groups of 10 and they get five loans over a period of time. And these loans have made a huge difference to their lives. And these are women who are not doing um, uh, not coming up some crazy business idea. There are people who are already weaving, but they can use extra money to buy buy their thread wholesale, which they couldn't afford to do, or buy their beads wholesale. Or the women who are selling one basket of tomatoes in the market, but they get a loan, and then they can buy a few other things so that they have more um, more to offer. Or we've had people who were selling from one tiny little table and they got their loan of uh, you know $125 and they were able to open a bigger area where they can sell and, and you know have more stock to sell and so we encourage women to have to have these loans and to go over a period of years several years where the loan becomes bigger and bigger each time it's paid back and that's made a huge difference because we find just one loan doesn't really do it people need to have a bit more encouragement and uh, you know a bit more help and um, we've had women start their own businesses from this. So that's made a huge difference. That's a great way to help people get ahead. And the other program we have is the Artisan program where we have women who do weaving and sewing and we sell in our little store and we also provide wholesale for anybody who's interested in any kind of items that are made from here in Guatemala. That sounds great. I didn't know very much about those programs. So thank you for sharing that. It sounds like it's very empowering for the women there. Well, that's exactly what we wanted it to be. We wanted women to be able to have their own money and to be able to learn a skill. When I came here, when I first came here 30 years ago, I think it might be over 30 years ago now, the women, um, I all the men came who were using the Singer sewing machines and I said, well, is there any women who are coming? And they said, women can't use these machines, you know, sing a sewing machine because they thought it was too complicated. Well, I knew I learned, my mother taught me how to sew on one of those. So I knew we could do it. <laughs> and so I said, aha. And uh, so I had in my mind that we would open sewing classes for women, which eventually we did. And I think we've had at least 400 women now graduate from those sewing classes. And we try to make sure that the women at the end of the class, uh, we have a beginner's class, an advanced class, we try to make sure that every woman receives a sewing machine to take home so that they can start their own business at home, their own little home business, selling aprons, whatever they can do. And we have some women who have gone on to continue working with us in our wholesale. So they're making things for to sell wholesale. Um, but it's just another way for women to be able to make money, to be able to feed their children, educate their children and, and better, their, better their lives. Which is so important because from what I understand, many women... Um, are left by their husbands in Guatemala. Many of them end up being alone with their children. So what better way than, than to be able to survive by learning these new skills that you offer? Yes, unfortunately, that is the situation. I do have a lot of men who seem to abandon the families. And um, this is something that 
I think might have started around when the civil war was happening. And, you know, of course, with people going to the States, we have that situation that some men leave their families, go to the States, unfortunately, that's the last they're heard of, whether something happened to them on the way or they get start a new life there. Um, but a lot of women are left to raise their children. And, um, and the men are such, you know, the men that I met are such hard workers. Um, I don't think they just leave their, you know, I didn't mean to make it sound like that, but it's true by trying to find a better life for their families. A lot of them get hurt and a lot of them, um, get ill as well, trying to make a better life for their families. And it's also a pride thing too. I think as a man, it, um, I know my dad was a very proud person and I know when he was unable to work, um, you know, it changed who he was and it, it, I guess because the man is, you know, different generation too, right? Like they have to be the provider and the, so I'm sure there's a lot of internal struggles as well there for men. But I think that it's, it's fantastic that women have uh, a chance, you know, with these micro loans that you're offering. That's why, so, you know, education is so key. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, and there are a lot of men who are wonderful fathers and husbands who work really hard, definitely. And, and they do work very, very hard. You know, but there there is another situation. There unfortunately are a lot of single mothers now, and sometimes grandmothers who are being left to raise the children. And sometimes situations like you know we have a young woman up in uh, Tierra Linda who husband went to the states and fell off the building and was sent back as a as a paraplegic. And so she now becomes a breadwinner. She's only twenty two, and her job is working in the fields. So she makes like three, four dollars a day and has to look after her husband and her. So there's all sorts of different situations where, you know, women need to be able to earn their own money <laughs> to be able to get ahead. And, and just everybody's situation is a little bit different. And just taking out the time to, to learn about everybody's story and, and to go down to Guatemala if you can and just be a part of that or even just go on the website and learn a little bit more about about what's happening in other parts of the world, I think is so important. I, th I agree with you. Mm -hmm. Well, we look forward to having anybody come to visit us. We please come on down. <laughs> well, thank you, Sharon, so much. I mean, thank you for being on the show, but most importantly, thank you for dedicating, for dedicating your life to making such a difference, not only in Guatemala, but in the entire world, because really, um, it affects the tourism and the people and the volunteers that come from outside of Guatemala. They then go home and talk about their experience. They then go home and can share share their thoughts and perhaps get people to donate. And so you really are making um, by doing what you're doing, you are really making it further than just Fundamaya. You know, you're you're bringing the conversation into dinner in people's homes in other countries. So I really appreciate your dedication and, and everything that everything that you do and your staff is just relentless. And I'm so happy that I met you when I did. Oh, thank you so much. And, and thank you so much for your kind words. But, you know, I have to say it really is not just me. It's a whole, a whole team of, of, of people here, our Guatemalan staff, um, uh, the people also who are just right behind doing that. They're the ones who really want the change and really trying to help their own communities. And so I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm the one who speaks English. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. We need some people who speak English down there. <laughs> 
Anyways, uh, but <laughs> thank you so much. And I look forward to seeing you again when COVID is over. I'm trying to figure out what I can do to help. I'm trying to learn to speak Spanish. Maybe I can go help out in one of the preschools with the kids or something. I don't know anything. Well, we'll, we'll look forward to having you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for coming on. I will place some information on the show notes about Sharon and her organization and uh, some information about Guatemala. Thank you again, Sharon. Thank you so much. Thank you, Neela. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe or leave a review. See you next week on the Giving Starts With You podcast.